it's that time of the weekend, isn't it, Tom? It is. It is. It's my favourite time of the week. I really look forward to this, Sam. I look forward to it too. You look forward to a poo. <laughs> sorry, sorry, did I mishear you? <laughs> sorry, did I mishear you there, Sam? The line went a bit crackly there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. Ah, right, that's set the tone very early on in this podcast. Oh, hasn't it just? Sorry about that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. Sorry about our intro. If it hasn't put you off already, welcome to the podcast. Every week, me, myself, Sam, and my friend Tom talk to each other from different sides of the world about an incredible history story we've discovered over the week. There's a topic to each week, but everything else that happens is a mystery and completely spontaneous, so there's lots of swearing, lots of laughter, and a good time is had by all. If you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app, and maybe leave us a review. It all makes a huge difference. Anyway, on with the show. What's our topic this week, Tom? Now, if I remember correctly, our topic is food. Our topic is is indeed food. Yeah, that was a trick question. I knew what the answer was. I was just checking that you'd done your research right. (laughs) I've got a good one here, Sam. I've enjoyed researching this one. What have you gone for? Firstly, I'm going to say that I'm glad we got the poo references out of the way to begin with on this episode about food. (laughs) I also want to... Well, I'm I'm going to start, Tom, if I may, by giving an honourable mention to one which I decided not to do. Okay. And that is a wonderful creation myth from Hawaii about how the breadfruit came to be. Oh. And the reason I didn't do this one, it's a wonderful story. The reason I didn't do it is because I couldn't find enough sources to back it up and, and really talk about it in any great depth. But there is a Hawaiian legend about how breadfruit tree grows across the island. And that is that the first breadfruit was in fact the testicles of a man who'd sacrificed his life for his family. And someone, I'm not entirely sure who, presented the gods with his testicles and they were delighted. They ate them thinking it was a fruit and thought, hmm, this is delicious. And whoever presented them with the testicles told them that it was in fact testicles and the gods were so reviled by this that they vomited all over the islands and that is how the islands became covered in breadfruit. That, mm. What a wonderful story. <laughs> yes, okay. So this prankster thought it'd be really funny to feed the gods some testicles. It sounds like a bad YouTube channel, doesn't it? It does. It's just a prank, bro. It's just a prank. Yeah, prank, bro. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Pranks are always hilarious, aren't they, Sam? Especially when they involve someone getting arrested or fed bodily parts, yes. Yes, yes. Ah, honourable mentions. I went down some pretty odd rabbit holes when I was researching this, Sam. I, I considered a brief history of Marmite, Ooh. but decided there probably wasn't enough to get out of that. It was, was, it was a bit disappointing. I was thinking it'd be a bit more amusing. I mean, half of our audience would have hated it as well. Exactly, exactly. It's a very polarising thing, the old Marmite. Captain Birdseye was disappointing. I researched Captain Birdseye hoping it had a funny history, but it didn't. Well, it turns out that Captain Birdseye isn't real. No. Everyone's favourite fish marketing board ploy is not, is not in fact a real man. He is not a real man, unfortunately. Shit me. You'll be telling me the Milky Bar kid's not real yet. No, but he is strong and tough. He is. Very brawny. I've heard that about him. <laughs> of all the fictional characters not to mess with. Is the Milky Bar kid. I'm still waiting for him to do a, a cameo of some kind in a Marvel film. <laughs> Captain America versus the Milky Bar Kid. What, what, the Milky Bar Kid just shoots Milky Bars? That's what he does, doesn't he? He has Milky Bars in his holsters. He does. He just kills you through tooth decay. (laughs) 
through type 2 diabetes yeah <laughs> yeah what was the other one i went that what was the other one i considered oh that was it the cod wars have you heard about the cod wars i i have slightly heard about the cod wars uh, it rings a bell yeah fucking boring sam when you look into it funny <laughs> funny name incredibly dull it's just about fishing and fishery rights it's incredibly boring i was expecting people to be you know sh- 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 shooting cod at each other <laughs> out, out, of, <laughs> out of shotguns but no it wasn't anywhere near as exciting as that but there are great things in the story I did choose to go for, which was the 1870 to 1871 siege of Paris. Ooh. That is going to be my topic. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I've gone for the pastry war. Oh, that's that's sounding very promising. It is. I have to be honest, there's relatively little food involved, but oh. it is a war caused by food. Now, Sam, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to be quite disappointed now if this story doesn't involve phalanxes of men holding exceptionally long baguettes um, <laughs> or Napoleonic cannons blowing jam-filled donuts at me <laughs> at enemy lines. I'm going to be disappointed. So you better not let me down. Well, in fact, you know that the famous Chelsea pensioners in London are named after the fact that uh, in the Napoleonic Wars, several of them lost limbs to erroneously fired Chelsea buns. <laughs> Is a story that's not true. But I just made up on the spot to try and please you. <laughs> good, no, no. It, Meet it your did. entirely unreasonable demands. No, it did. It was that was good. I quite liked that. I'd quite like to be in in a war where uh, people were shooting pastries at each other. You could sort of, sort of try and catch them in your mouth, like when you got grapes and you throw them up in the air and you try and catch it in your mouth. It'd be like that. <laughs> well, you know, cannons did fire grape shot. So, in a fruit or food based war, if a food fight became real and suddenly very much more serious than the schoolyard classic we all know and love, you might indeed find yourself being pelted with grapes, which I imagine, probably, in reality, would be less fun than it sounds. I, I imagine they'd hurt. It's, that'd be like being hit when you play paintball, wouldn't it? I think that'd be quite uncomfortable. It would. A, a donut would probably... The impact would be spread across the surface area of the donut and your face more comfortably, I imagine, than a grape. <laughs> It'd be like being hit by an airbag, a jam-filled airbag. I mean, that's going to look brutal. It's going to look incredibly brutal when you get hit by a jam-filled donut. Absolutely. It's It's the combination of blood and jam fly in slow motion (laughs) over your shoulder. (laughs) When did the pastry war take place? 1838 to 1839. Its official name is the First Franco-Mexican War. Oh, well, I never. So we've gone quite a similar period here, Sam. We have. I don't know too much about this period. It's not something I've studied in great depth. I did a bit of research and found out that this is the early modern period, but not the early modern period, because the early modern period was from the Renaissance through to the French Revolution. So the French Revolution being the late early modern period and the Renaissance being the early, early modern period. Yes, well, this is the late early modern period, yes. This, no, this is the early modern... On, oh, is it the early... No, when, when was the French Revolution? It's the, it's the early, late modern period. It's the early, late <laughs> modern period. It's not the Should early Should we drop this? I'm thoroughly period. enjoying this, but I feel like... <laughs> I think it's important. I think it's very important that we just establish which period we're talking here, Sam. I think I'm talking the early modern period, but I think you're talking the early modern period. Right, I think you're probably correct in that. (laughs) I like that we're so good at communicating clearly with our audience. They'll enjoy this. I think we're all learning today. (laughs) 
Oh dear. So, who's going to go first? Well, in a sickening and frankly horrific turn of events. You haven't got a coin. I've got a coin. Piss off. But don't worry, Tom. It's a single Chinese yuan. Mm. Excellent. Sorry, that was me acknowledging that with a glass of juice in my mouth. <laughs> I also feel, Sam, actually I should apologise to people for a few previous podcasts where I've been meandering around the room and not keeping my mouth close to the microphone. Although it will, you know, I did think one of the advantages to me leaning back away from the microphone was it did sound like we were in maybe the Louvre, you know, having this podcast. It did make it sound like we might be in a museum or a gallery. <laughs> I thought it sounded like we were in a men's toilet. Yes, well, yeah, or the, the Louvre. The different places our minds go. <laughs> yeah. Didn't Paul McCartney used to um, practice riffs in his toilet in his family home in Liverpool because it had good acoustics? So he would sit on the toilet playing his guitar just to see how it sounded. I have no idea about that. But people do, you know, you sing in the bathroom, don't you? You sing in the bath, you sing in the shower. It immediately makes you sound better. Yeah, probably because there's the sound of the shower drowning you out. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Anywho, so you, you flip your Juan. I will flip my Juan. Oh, do you want heads or tails, by the way? Or... Do you want the side with proletariat on it or the side with grass on it? <laughs> can, can I have the side with ethnic cleansing on it, please? Um, which? Mm. Yeah, pro, proletariat it is. <laughs> okay. It's landed on the grass. And I'm going to let you go first, Tom. Excellent. Okay, right. So the siege of Paris. So this took place in the autumn and winter of 1870 to 1871. It was one of the major events in the Franco-Prussian War. And no surprises here, the Franco-Prussian War was a war between France and Prussia. I'm sure most of you could have guessed that. Prussia at the time were the major, they were the most powerful Germanic state, but there were other German states that were allied with Prussia at the time. And together they became known as the North German Confederation, and they were led by Otto von Bismarck. At the time in continental Europe, the French were the major power. So the Prussians were sort of using this war as an opportunity to, A, try to unite the German states, the independent ones with Prussia, to create the German Empire, which actually did happen, and sort of challenge the power of the French. So they were hoping to upset the balance in continental Europe and become a more powerful state than the French. The Germans quite quickly got the upper hand. The French were the the favourites, but in the rather French way they kind of cocked things up (laughs) in the rather french way they lost the war (laughs) yes yes they lost the war to the germans which is a theme that was repeated on a number of occasions in the subsequent centuries best of four Uh, yes there's some good jokes that are probably 80 years old i like the one why are french roans lined with trees and the punchline is so the german army can march in the shade i quite like that one that's quite a good joke I quite like it. I thought it was quite a, quite a good joke. So the Germans defeat the French at the Battle of Sedan, which I think was in 1870. And in the process, they capture Napoleon III and they end the Second French Empire. Quite quickly, the French Third Republic is announced. And uh, <laughs> I know that... I feel like that's just renaming the same thing. That's just marketing, isn't it? Sam, I've not studied a lot of French history, but when you look at it, there have been a lot of chops and changes you know, well, I mean, this is the second French empire that Napoleon III was leading. So there was obviously one before that. This is the French Third Republic. So there were obviously two republics before that that failed. So there's quite a lot of chopping and changing. Yeah. I can't help but feel that this is like Weight Watchers recently rebranded itself as W. And I'm pretty sure that that is equivalent to the French empire rebranding itself the French Republic. I'm sure historians of early modern French history would 
argue against that, Sam. I would say it was a little more complicated <laughs> than, than Weight Watchers rebranding. But, you know, we'll roll with that. As... They've got a new logo. <laughs> yeah, a new flag. Same old, <laughs> different flag. So the French Third Republic take over control and they continue to fight the German forces despite a rather dire predicament. They have armies in the field, but they're not actually very successful. They have the odd success, but generally it's not particularly successful. And the the French are under siege in Paris and also Metz. Our story begins here, Sam. So we're going to be talking about this siege of Paris. Now, there's an American doctor who's visiting France at the time as a tourist called Robert Lauroy Sibbett from Pennsylvania. And he has a fantastic book that he writes. So it's a, a beautiful primary source that tells us about what life was like in Paris during this siege. And obviously the topic of today is food. So I'm going to discuss mostly what the Parisians were eating. And we know what oh French yeah, we know, we know what French eating habits oh are like. So you can you can start to get we a feel. We know what French eating habits are like in the good times. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you can start to anticipate where this is going to go. Oh no! As you would expect, early on in the siege, all the nice animals disappear quite quickly. So the cattle, sheep, pigs, <laughs> they get they get eaten reasonably quickly, and there's attempts made to look after the more vulnerable people in society: the sick, the aged, children. And so fat cattle and milk cows are apparently put aside for these more vulnerable people. It doesn't take long for the horses to start getting eaten. There's an audit of horses and mules. There are around 100,000 at the start of the siege, but this does rapidly diminish. Luckily, there's lots of bread, so there's plenty of flour. And it sounds as if the French are working overtime to process this flour into, into bread. And they're actually using steam trains to turn the meals, according to Sibbet, which is, you know quite inventive i think that's very clever yeah i think it's quite clever i I can't sort of picture how it would work but yeah you know that's how they were doing it in mid-november rationing in rationing is in full force so here we have some bits of information from sib it's 100 grams of fresh meat per day per person and calculations are made that suggest there are about 105 days worth of meat left so 28 days of beef or veal 45 days worth of horse 20 days of salted meats 12 days worth of salt fish. There's enough flour for six months, so flour's in a better position. There are about five months worth of non-necessities, like salt, rice, oil, coffee, tea, and chocolate. And unsurprisingly, again, for the French, Sam, there are 10 months worth of booze. So there's (laughs) plenty of alcohol to go around. I have to say, as sieges go, that doesn't sound that bad right now. Yeah, I think that food starts to go quite quickly when you've got a lot of hungry mouths to feed. Things do start to get more creative quite quickly. So here we have a description from Sibbet of a boucherie. So he describes that there are several large dogs neatly dressed. And by neatly dressed, I don't think they're in (laughs) in shirt and tails. I think they've been skinned and are presented for consumption. So several large dogs have been neatly dressed. (laughs) I quite like dogs. I'm going to imagine it is the former. They're dressed in those sort of novelty Christmas outfits (laughs) that you give your dogs. Yeah. That make them look like a Christmas elf holding a box, that sort of thing. (laughs) There are several large cats, Sam, and the butcher's wife is trying hard to sell to an old lady. Can't help but feel that maybe your old lady isn't going to be your target market. I think they prefer to (laughs) pat cats and not bread them. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Catlets. <laughs> Cat croutons, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that old lady's suddenly going to have the horrible realisation that the cat in the butcher's window looks an awful lot like Princess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who hasn't been seen in a couple of days. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. It doesn't. <laughs> I, I would not be targeting little old ladies if I'm trying to sell fresh cat meat. Things get a little bit more disgusting. So we've got 12 rats on a tray. <laughs> Nicely presented, at least. On a tray. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite happy that the rats are being killed. That's not the issue. But it's this poor young woman, timid young woman, who's checking out the rats because they're all she can afford. And she's got a young family. She's got a baby with her. And she's trying to get some meat for her family. So, you know, she's having to consider buying rats. Interestingly, Sam, though, cats and dogs were sold in butchers in France into the 20th century. It's not mm. actually that unusual for the French to be selling these as types of meat. No, the French will eat any old shit. If you, if you look at it in an impartial way, Sam, we consume a lot of beef, don't we? But in Hindu culture, that would be deemed a very strange thing to do. This is very true. A lot of people don't eat pork, don't eat pig. No, absolutely. But we happily do. So, you know, we shouldn't judge others. We shouldn't, except the French. <laughs> Oh dear. So the poor people in Paris, you know, life isn't actually very nice during this siege after a lot of the meat has been eaten up. Canteens are set up around Paris by Paris's mayors and selling horse bone soup. And we find out from Sibbert that it's not only the, the very poor in society that are going to these canteens. Actually, there was a lot of wealthy people who have spent their last franc and have no more money and having to go and feed off the state. Many of the even poorer people in society are actually taking a gamble by going out to the fields around the perimeter of Paris to try and find vegetables, you know, from from some of the fields. But this does sound like it's a pretty hairy thing to try to do because a lot of them are actually just getting shocks. It's very close to the picket line, so very close to where the siege Mm. lines are for Paris. As well as the famine element of the siege, there's an outbreak of smallpox, which... Sibbett calls the loathsome scourge of mankind. Mortality raises from 150 cases to 400 a week with this outbreak. And the Academy of Medicine in Paris actually started giving out free vaccinations. And I just can't help but take this opportunity, Sam, to tell our listeners, do vaccinate your children. (laughs) There is an outbreak of measles currently in Christchurch because people haven't been vaccinating their children. Please do it. Please do. (laughs) I'm Sam and I support this message. (laughs) Sibbit is fortunate. He's a wealthy individual from the States and he and some friends at Christmas go to a restaurant because restaurants are still operating so there's still a degree of commerce going on during this siege and they have a, a meal of horse and he sort of muses rather guiltily that he's eating this wonderful meal of horse whilst many people outside are queuing for horse soup. And a lot of people can't afford the dog, cats and rats because they're being sold at extravagant prices. You know, basic supply and demand. If it's difficult to get a hold of a rat, then it will become a bit more expensive. I'm somewhat surprised that restaurants would still be operating during a siege and able to serve proper meals given that food has just run out. The same thing crossed my mind, Sam. I was very, very surprised. From what I've read, there was a degree of state control. So the state were trying to help quality, so ensure that the Mm. poorer people in society were also getting fed. But at the same time, you know, things have got to try and run as normally as possible. And you can't be everywhere at once, can you? So I think allowing things to run as they normally would is fairly sensible, really. December the 27th. Sibbett tells us that he's walking along a street and a half-starved horse falls to the ground. And within minutes, people have come out from the buildings around the street and are carving it to pieces, butchering this horse in the street. They're so hungry. So it really is rather desperate for people. And, you know, as you just mentioned, there are people who can afford still to go to posh restaurants and eat their horse. Now, eventually, 
the zoo gets targeted, Zam. Or the zoos get targeted. <laughs> oh no, not the meerkats. I know. Not the ocelot. This is where things get quite exotic. It seems as if <laughs> the French government are quite happy for people to be buying and selling the zoo meat. So there are no controls around the price that you can sell this stuff at. So people are making money with this. There are young elephants are sold, camels are sold. There's a couple of elephants called Castor and Pollux that were probably eaten at the time. Kangaroos, ostriches, antelopes. Monkeys, however, were left behind because they were deemed too similar to humans. And this is only, I think it's only 10 years after the publication of uh, The Origin of Species by Darwin. <laughs> Lions and tigers are left well alone as well. And the reason behind what? that, the reason behind that seems to be they're just too tricky to kill. <laughs> they're rather feisty. Uh, we don't want to risk it. The, the lion and tigers are left alone, and hippos are deemed a bit too unsanitary. So the hippos are left alone as well, which I think I think is quite funny because. I can imagine there's a lot of meat on a hippo. Yeah. Also, I like that rats are considered absolutely fine. Yeah, I thought the same thing. You can't eat hippos because they're unsanitary, but the sewer-dwelling rats are absolutely fine. Yes. I used to keep pet rats, and rats are, in and of themselves, quite clean animals. But the ones that lived in sewers haven't got the best diet. (laughs) No, no, no. I would say comparable to a hippo. That's been kept in a rather clean zoo. Yeah, I'd rather go Mm. for the hippo. Yeah. So we get lots of the posh restaurants providing very exotic menus, Sam. You've got Dumbo Gumbo, Ostrich Biscuits, Emu Ragu and Sautéed Cat, <laughs> Poodle Noodle, Sewer Rat Kit Kats, Nelly Jelly and Kangaroo Stew, Skippy Chippies, Caramel Camels, Caraway Takeaway, Tom Cat Cakes, Chow 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 Chow, Ground Down Bloodhound, Reindeer Craft Beer Chocolate Mousse. <laughs> that was beautiful. Is that a Tom Berry original? It is. Did you like that? I love that. That's a lot of effort's gone into that. Well done. I tried poetry. You must have been caught in an appalling traffic jam to come up with that. <laughs> that was primarily thought up whilst I was in the car, yes. I particularly like... Shit, I'm going to have to write a song quickly, aren't I? <laughs> I quite like Dumbo Gumbo. That was probably my favourite one. I quite like Chow 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 Chow. <laughs> yeah. On a serious note, Sam... Thank you very much. Yeah, there you go. There you go. This feels like a year six English project. <laughs> now we're going to do an acrostic, Tom. Sibit actually does give us a translation of a genuine menu, and it's not actually that much different. So let me read it out for you. Siege bread, horse soup, dog cutlets ou petit pois, ragout of cat à la parisienne, donkey à la sauce soubise, fricasse of rats and mice à la chinois, fillet of mule à la portugaise, <laughs> roast ostrich à la allemande. And it says at the bottom here, Mr. Washbourne of the United States Embassy was present at this dinner in Paris, which was one of the last given before the capitulation. I particularly like cat à la Parisienne. <laughs> yeah, ragu. No, it's ragu of cat à la Parisienne. Oh, ragu of cat. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how Fantastic. you pronounce it. Ragu. And it says at the bottom here, the whole of the animals and birds. Catatouille. Cat- that was a good one. Why didn't I think of that in my poem? Catatouille. <laughs> I'm going to have to make a note. I can improve my poem. <laughs> it says at the bottom here of this menu, the whole of the animals and birds of the Jardin Acclimatation were brought by an English butcher of the Faubourg Saint-Honneur just before the siege and were all sold by him during the siege at the rate of 25 francs per pound. He is said to have realised a very large fortune by the transaction. So not everyone's doing badly here, Sam. Someone's making a bit of money out of buying zoo animals and feeding them to people. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, that's enterprising because he bought them before the siege, Absolutely. thinking, aha, there's a siege coming, I better buy the zoo. Absolutely. That's entrepreneurism. He needs credit for that anticipating is. the siege. Definitely. <laughs> I'm guessing there was an anticipation that a siege was about to take place. I doubt he did it before the Franco-Prussian War took place. I mean, that would have just been stupidity. Just buying zoo animals on the off chance that there was going to be a siege where you might want to eat them. Maybe he signed an agreement with them years beforehand, knowing full well that Paris at some point in the next 15 years was going to find itself surrounded by Germans. He basically just shotgunned them, didn't he, Sam? <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> he just said, oh, I'll tell you what, mate, shotgun your animals if there's ever a siege. <laughs> and it turns out eventually he did literally shotgun them so yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i think we get a description somewhere about how the horses were killed but they're supposedly very humanely killed by <laughs> let me find the organization by I the central sanitary commission the central sanitary commission by all accounts controlled how the horses were killed anyway just to sort of wrap things up in late January 1871 an armistice was signed by the prussians uh, and the french and the prussians left france they'd basically achieved what they wanted to achieve in this very short and sharp war and that is unifying the German states to create the German Empire and also switching power from France to Germany so Germany became the major player on continental Europe obviously the British Empire being you know the biggest of the bunch and it was busy at this time building its empire so it wasn't too involved in affairs on the subcontinent and they also got massive reparations from France and they secured the area of Alsace-Lorraine as a German territory and we know that that area was Hitler set his eyes on Alsace-Lorraine didn't he somewhat contentious yes so there you have it Sam that was the 1870 to 1871 siege of Paris fantastic and I'm genuinely hungry now <laughs> hungry. can you read your poem one more time Tom oh, I would love to Sam I want to hear your poem it took hours absolutely hours I'll click my fingers in an appreciative jazz style as you're doing it. I was going to ask if you could if you could drop some sick beats. <clears throat> there was Dumbo Gumbo, Ostrich Biscuits, Emu Ragu and Sautéed Cat, Poodle Noodle, Surat Kit Kats, Nelly Jelly and Kangaroo Stew, Skippy Chippies, Caramel Camels, Caraway Takeaway and Tom Cat Cakes, Chow 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 Chow, Ground Down Bloodhound, Reindeer Craft Beer and Chocolate Moose. Beautiful. I, I, we should just end the podcast now. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to better that. The whole podcast, not just <laughs> this episode, the whole thing. Yeah, that is it. We're done. Officially retiring. That's beautiful. That's dedication to the cause. I'm almost worried now that mine's going to be a letdown. <laughs> it isn't if you've got phalanxes of Macedonian forces with baguettes, Sam. Just make it up. <laughs> I feel like that's a bit too much cultural crossover, Tom. I'm not entirely sure why you'd be bringing Greeks to a bread fight. <laughs> Or bread to a Greek fight. I don't, know. don't overanalyze it, Sam. We've made enough mistakes in this podcast. <laughs> I made a horrible mistake in a couple of podcasts ago about Domitian, the Roman emperor, and I got the period of his reign completely wrong. So don't worry, Sam. It's riddled with mistakes, this podcast. Just go with it. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, Tom, today I'm going to talk to you about the pastry war. The war fought over a single bakery. In Spanish, it's known as the Guerra de los Pasteles, or the War of the Cakes. That was quite nicely pronounced, Sam. Thanks. And in French, it's known as Guerre de Patisseries, or indeed, War of the Cakes. That was also quite good. And unusually, Tom, this is a war that France won. (laughs) (laughs) Its official name is the First Franco-Mexican War of 1838 to 1839. Definitely not the last Franco-Mexican War. To set the scene... It's 1821 and Mexico has officially gained independence from Spain after an 11-year quite bloody war of independence. It was brutal and it plunged the newly freed Mexico into absolute turmoil. Mexico had gained independence, but Mexico wasn't really a functioning state. It had 
various different lords and warlords in different places. It had a lot of different people vying for power and their slice of the pie. It was a mess. And in this period, looting wasn't just common, it was often government-sanctioned to try and get just a little bit of money to, to pay the government's bills, to pay the army. And there was nothing anyone could really do about it when it happened. Mexican citizens just had to kind of suck it up as a fact of life that soldiers would raid their homes and take whatever they wanted. However, at least foreigners living in Mexico had some routes of appeal because they could talk to their national governments and have them put a bit of pressure on Mexico, although it rarely did any good. One such victim of looting was a Monsieur Remontel, who owned a bakery in the town of I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Tacubaya, on the outskirts of Mexico City. Don't do yourself down, Sam. You've done some fantastic accents so far, <laughs> and you've done some wonderful pronunciations. You're allowed a little bit of a hiccup. I'll wait until I try the Mexican accent later. <laughs> it's going to be a smorgasbord of racial insensitivity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in 1832, this Monsieur Remontel wrote to King Louis-Philippe of France, declaring that his shop had been ransacked by the Mexican government and asking that the French demand 60,000 pesos compensation on his behalf. Now, 60,000 pesos is a ludicrous amount of compensation, Tom. The shop was worth approximately 1,000 pesos. But we don't know how good his pastries were, Sam. I mean, these could have been very, very good pastries. It, they could have been bloody good pastries. Mexico isn't known for its French pastry. No, it's not really, is it? I, I don't know how well pastries were selling. In Mexico. Uh, you imagine the Mexican heat. What you're desperate for in Mexico, I think, is water, not a beautiful croissant. Oh, I would have a beautiful croissant on a hot day, Sam. Well, that's you, Tom. Mm, I like croissant. <laughs> Me too. But anyway, Monsieur Remontel was demanding a frankly ludicrous amount for his shop. And it's entirely possible that he did this in league with the French government. As we will see, there's some politics to this. But to give you an idea of how much he was demanding, one peso was a day's wage for the average man, and baking at the time is not a particularly middle-class profession. Everyone needs bread, there's an awful lot of bakers around. So he was essentially demanding 60,000 days' labour for his ransacked shop. When you put it that way, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a lot of money. So what did the French do in response? They went to the Mexican government and demanded 600,000 pesos. <laughs> they thought, well, that seems a little undervalued to us. We'll multiply it by a factor of 10. He does make wonderful donuts. He does. I actually think you're undervaluing your donuts, so we're going to go to the Mexican government and ask for a lot, lot more. I imagine he just sent a box of donuts to King Philippe of France. King Philippe went, oh, these are delicious. Despite the fact that they've just been on a, a rather long <laughs> ship journey from Mexico. <laughs> on a rat-infested boat. <laughs> eh oui, these eight-month-old donuts. I have never tested anything like it. Sacre bleu. I've never tested anything so hard. It is like <laughs> putting, putting my teeth through the soles of my boot. Very tasty. <laughs> and what is this jam? It has a beautiful green bits floating in it. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Such fresh maggots. <laughs> I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. It's a beautiful. It is a multi-sensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The smell, the sight. Oh. I'm, I'm glad we've had an opportunity to do some LOLO style French accents. Oh, it is almost as good as my favorite cat meat sandwich. <laughs> Each of these six donuts is worth at least... A hundred thousand days work <laughs> for the average Mexican citizen I, at the time. I suspect about a hundred thousand. 
<laughs> Let me pluck a figure out of the sky. These donuts are so good. I will take a figure from my bejeweled ass <laughs> and demand it of the Mexican government. But anyway, yes, the, the French government demanded 600,000 pesos from the Mexican government for damages to the shop and for another marketplace that had also been ransacked that was owned by a Frenchman. Now, why did they do this, Tom? Well, this is where it gets political, interesting and, frankly, just a bit silly. France was one of Mexico's largest trading partners, but had been a bit slow in setting up formal trade agreements because the two had a slightly difficult relationship in the past. Mexico still owed France quite a lot of money for debts incurred in the Texan Revolution in 1836. But more on that in a bit. Ooh. Ooh, Ooh indeed. Ooh. I felt a shiver go up my <laughs> spine there. Ooh, excitement. <laughs> Ooh, just a little bit of a shiver in my prostate. So Britain and the US were Mexico's largest trading partners, and they'd very quickly recognised Mexican independence and sent out trade emissaries. However, France didn't recognise Mexican independence until 1830, which is nine years after it was originally declared, and they didn't have a formal trade agreement, meaning that French imports and exports to Mexico were taxed at much higher rates than for the UK and the US. So this situation didn't sit well with the French, who in addition to the war loans that Mexico still owed them, they wanted trade on equal terms and they were looking for any excuse to basically kick off with Mexico. So the claim for 600,000 pesos was at least in part... <laughs> Sorry, Sam. There's nothing worse than a Frenchman looking for a fight, is there, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on, any of you. I, I want to fight. I will take on all of you. One at a time, all at once. Come on, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I will punch you with my fist, but I have had to eat them in a recent siege, which we will not talk about. <laughs> Manuel, bring me my horse. Oh, shit. What is left of it? It has no legs. Preferably between two pieces of bread. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining a French person in a pub starting a fight. The situation didn't sit well with the French, who wanted equal trade with the US and UK, and they were frankly looking for a Barney with Mexico. So that kind of explains why they put such a, a ludicrous 600,000 peso claim on the Mexican government, even though the claim was for a pastry shop. <laughs> so the end result makes sense. The methodology, not so much. <laughs> it, it not so much. Oh, here we go. Here's the Mexican accent. It not so much. It did not make the sense. Hey. That was quite clearly Italian. <laughs> They're all Latin, aren't they, Sam? <laughs> Your geography of the northern half of the world. Uh, it's all, all a bit shame, really, isn't it, Sham? Hey? All, 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 all these All these Europeans <laughs> and the Mexicans. <laughs> so, unsurprisingly, the Mexicans told the French... <laughs> Thomas! <laughs> unsurprisingly, the Mexicans told the French <laughs> where to go. President Anastasio Bustamante refused to pay and France used this trash baker shop as a pretext to launch a naval blockade of the entire Atlantic Mexican seaboard. Oh dear, God, this, this baker must have felt very self-important. <laughs> I would personally be shriveling up in embarrassment at this point. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to go. I've been sat there looking at my baguette going, was this worth it? <laughs> yes, it was. It is a wonderful yes, baguette. Yes, it was. It's a fucking lovely baguette. <laughs> we know how protective the French get over their food. Yes, so, from spring 1838, the French Navy arrive 
and blockade every port on Mexico's Atlantic coast. In November 1838, this Cold War, this blockade, becomes hot. And they actually bombard the fortress of San Juan de Lua. Uh, I'm pronouncing that wrong. With croissants. <laughs> with stale donuts from their never canon. <laughs> with mille fule. <laughs> yes. With our massive custard guns, we will drown them in custard. Funk, bring out this jam cannon. <laughs> hey, Mexico, we are bringing the pan. And also, the pain. <laughs> this isn't going to stop, is it? This is just going to be the story of a tragic and bloody war interspersed with bad French accents and j- jokes about croissant. As it should be. <clears throat> Are we done? Are we good? Okay. Good. Yes, we're good. I, I'm, yes. I have it out of my system now. The French bombarded the fortress of San Juan de Lua, which guarded the city of Veracruz, and they seized the town, this very important harbour on the Gulf Coast, at the same time capturing most of the Mexican navy. Uh, as a result, Mexico began to starve, and smuggling became rife. Smugglers began pulling in food supplies through the US and Texas, which was by then itself an independent republic. The Texans were furious and worried that the French would see them as supporting their old masters, Mexico, and given as well the debt, it wouldn't have taken much for France to uh, start to look towards Texas as a possible victim as well. Texas, you owe us five billion What is this? I see a stale baguette on your floor. I hope you have paid for that. It could get very expensive if you have not. So the Texans raised a militia to blockade the Mexican border and hunt down smugglers. Even the US, for similar reasons, sent a ship to help the French blockade. So this bakery-based war starts to become a real international incident. You've got France fighting Mexico, Texas raising an army on the border, and the US sending its navy to help. Now, the Mexican forces were led in this rather stupid endeavour by a retired general called Antonio López de Santa Ana. He had once been the president of Mexico, but had failed as a military commander to stop the Texan independence movement. He had a brutal reputation. This was the guy who commanded the Mexican forces at the Battle of the Alamo, which is obviously a very famous battle, which had seen the Texian army defenders slaughtered by the Mexican army with no prisoners taken. However, later in that war, he'd been captured by the Texian army, and it's not the Texan army, it's the Texian army. Oh, I thought you were mispronouncing it. Okay. No, it's it's pronounced the Texian army. And so he'd been captured in 1836 and had been living in exile and basically in shame before returning to Mexico and retiring. So without getting permission from the Mexican government, he came out of retirement, took command of military forces near Veracruz and ordered a mass mobilisation, calling on every able-bodied Mexican to join the army before launching a counterattack on the city. Unfortunately for him, he was wounded before the attack could be properly launched, being injured by grape shot, as discussed earlier. <laughs> oh, yes, OK. By a, by a French barrage of fruit. And <laughs> he lost a leg to some French cannon fire. We've all been legless off, off some grape shot. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Oh, have you ever tried grappa? No, I've heard, I have heard of it, though. Is that, is that a, What is it? You tell me what it is. It's a Greek Cypriot, kind of southern Italian spirit basically made from grape skins ah. and grape seeds and it is unbelievably disgusting <laughs> i quite enjoy spirits i'll drink most things neat but grappa is absolute paint stripper it's horrendous horrendous yeah. stuff and it gets you absolutely battered so is it worth is it worth the sacrifice if you're just trying to get drunk no who drink it <laughs> who, what's it drunk for is it drunk as a because people enjoy it or it's, do people drink no, it no it's pissed? it's drunk as i 
digestive. Oh, okay. So you drink it after a meal to help the meal settle, supposedly. <laughs> it gives you the shits and soon clears you out and makes you feel a lot better. Indeed. Within four hours, you'll be bending over a squat toilet somewhere. <laughs> Leaking from all orifice-i. Orifi. <laughs> Why did you suddenly try and Latinize that word? <laughs> I was trying to sound historical, Tom. I was trying to sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about in this podcast. Well, fine. Orifice, orify, orifu, orifum. <laughs> I never learned Latin, as you can tell. Back to the pastry war. Santa Anna lost his leg before he could launch the counterattack. But he was considered such a hero after this that his reputation was completely restored. He actually managed to have his leg buried with full military honours in Mexico City, including being ridden through the city in a gilt carriage with a full military escort and being buried with a cannon salvo and military gunfire and poetry being read above the grave of his leg. So his reputation, having gone from being a bit of a military failure, it was fully restored. Jesus Christ, what would have happened if he lost the testicle? Well, I imagine more or less the same. With a single bollock being ridden on a gilt carriage through Mexico City. <laughs> it would also make what happened next much more amusing. <laughs> being carried by six men, a massive Indeed. bollock <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a red velvet cushion <laughs> with gold trim. Before being fed to the gods of Hawaii. Is exactly where <laughs> I was. thought it was delicious. This. Yes, and yeah. vomited it all over Mexico. Well, this missing leg will come back to haunt us later. We're going to actually be haunted by a leg. We're going to be haunted by a dead leg. What kicked up the ass during the night? <laughs> <laughs> but off the back of this, Santa Anna, he, he played this. He played this hard, losing this leg in the war against the French. So his reputation was fully restored. He had his leg buried with military honours. And his reputation was restored to the extent that he eventually managed to wing the presidency back on the back of the wounds he sustained in the pastry war. <laughs> Let's just revisit that sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a man has just had his leg given a full military funeral yep. after his heroism during the pastry wars. Indeed. You couldn't write it, could you, Sam? <laughs> that is totally ridiculous. It is frankly ridiculous, yes. It's the equivalent of becoming king of Scotland following the Battle of Shortbread. <laughs> oh, following the great siege of porridge. <laughs> the charge of the Haggis Brigade, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 yeah, the, the, the battle at the... the... It was going somewhere so promising. I wanted to join in the jokes and I failed. Oh, you can join in later. I have to say, so Santa Anna won back the presidency as a result of the kind of the propaganda he spurned after his wounds in the pastry war. More than just a wound, Sam, he lost a leg. <laughs> he did lose a leg. <laughs> More than just a mere wound, I feel. Okay, well, I can tell whose side you're on. <laughs> and not that Santa Anna winning the presidency was anything particularly special. I've got a question for you, Tom. How many times do you think... Santa Anna became president of Mexico. Oh, God, I don't... I mean, this story has been pretty ridiculous so far. A sensible number, three or four. Three or four. Let me tell you, Tom, between 1833 and 1855, Santa Anna was president of Mexico 11 times. Oh, for crying out loud. I tell you what, though, Tom, he was almost as bad at losing legs as he was at winning presidencies. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because in 1844, during one of the more difficult presidencies, rioters who were angry about tax hikes 
dug up the leg that he'd had buried with full military honours. They dug it up with full military honours. They they dug it up with full military honours and (laughs) paraded it through the streets of Mexico City, dragging it on a rope behind them and shouting, death to the cripple. Now, that's pretty bad. (laughs) But if that had been his bollock... (laughs) It would have rolled and it would have been far easier. (laughs) They'd have been playing football with it down the streets. (laughs) Hacking sack. (laughs) Bally sack, <laughs> nutty sack. <laughs> they, could have, they could have had both and had a game of golf. <laughs> Croquet, anyone? <laughs> The French just batting it down the street with a croissant stuck to the end of the baguette. And that's where French cricket originated. Indeed. Um, so they dug up his leg. They dug up his leg, paraded it through the streets, dragging it on a rope, shouting death to the cripple. <laughs> I'm going to put it out there. Mexico has a slightly difficult history. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But it doesn't end there, Tom, because in 1847, Santa Ana was having lunch during the Battle of... Quero Gordo during the US-Mexican War when American troops surprised him. With an extra leg? <laughs> well, well he, he ran away being as he was no, not he actually didn't. a very good no, general. He, he hopped. <laughs> Sam, he cannot run away. <laughs> it's not physically possible. Shit, the sources don't add up. Okay. He Correction. bounded away on his one leg. Correction. American troops surprised him and he hopped off. You are in fact correct, Tom, because the soldiers who'd surprised him captured his two false legs. <laughs> one of which one of which was paraded around American country fairs as a freak show and people would pay people would pay a cent or a dime to see it. The other one, Tom, the other of his legs was used as a baseball bat. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Why does he need to have two legs? Two, two, two. Is, is it for one for special occasions? He had a wooden one and a cork one. <laughs> one for business, one for pleasure. Um, <laughs> And let me t- and let me tell you, Tom, the two legs are currently still in a U.S. military museum in Springfield, Illinois, and have been a source of ongoing tension and disagreement because there's been an international appeal for the last century by Mexico to try and get them back. Oh, for fuck's sake! Oh, it's, it's hardly the bloody Elgin marbles, is it? It's two false legs. <laughs> Christ Almighty! Anyway, that is the somewhat tumultuous story of Santa Ana, uh, who also ended up being exiled several times before being returned to be president again and again and again. (laughs) Anyway, back to the pastry war briefly. Oh, Jesus. So the war ended in March 1839 after a British brokered peace to reopen Mexico's ports and end the blockade, but not before 32 Frenchmen and 92 Mexicans were killed. And dozens more wounded. All because of a pastry shop. All because of a pastry shop. The end result of the war was that Mexico did indeed agree to pay 600,000 pesos for damages to the pastry shop and open up Mexican ports to French trade on on equal terms. Uh, Unfortunately, Mexico didn't have 600,000 pesos. It was completely bankrupt and so never paid the fine, 
which was one of the reasons why the French invaded again in 1861 over the unpaid debt for the pastry shop in a significantly more bloody war, which lasted five and a half years and saw tens of thousands killed. Oh, bloody hell, France. Which is indeed a lot of pain, or a lot of pan, for one bakery. Oh, I thought you Yes. Uh, it's not known what happened to Monsieur Remontel. I imagine he probably retired a very happy man, assuming yes. that he got some kind of some kind of compensation, or indeed a very embarrassed man. And that is the story of the pastry war of <laughs> of 1838 to 1839. I have to say though, Tom, this is not the only war between the Europeans and the Americas that's been based on food. Oh, tell me more. Because I very nearly did the Pig War of 1859, when the US and UK, or British North America, later Canada, were involved in a significant and several-month-long military standoff involving a naval fleet and several thousand soldiers over a British farmer's pig which had wandered across the border and eaten an American farmer's potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) And and I I have a quote here from that war. The American farmer, Cutler, quote-unquote, that pig was eating my potatoes. British farmer Griffin, quote-unquote, rubbish, it's your responsibility to keep your potatoes out of my pig. And that is how the (laughs) war started. Oh, my God. I might have to do that for another episode, but that's another wonderful story. But I thought the pastry war, particularly because of Santa Ana, was was a better one to do this time round. They were very trigger happy in the 19th century, weren't they? They certainly were. Everyone was looking for a fight. So there we go, Tom. That's the story of the pastry war and several missing legs. That's fantastic, Sam. And my jaw still hurts. That was (laughs) a wonderful story. I think I shall be remembering Polecat Kit Kat for the rest of my day as well. I'll notice it was Sewer Rat Kit Kats, but I Sewer like Rat Polecat Kit Kat. That one is a good one. I, chow 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 Chow, I was quite impressed with when I got that one. Chocolate, I'm, I'm very pleased with that one. I actually misspelled. I, I said Caraway Takeaway, I meant Cassaway Takeaway. Oh, I've disappointed myself. I've let myself down. Right, go back, start again. We're doing the whole yeah, podcast start the again. Whole podcast again. No, I'm not going to be able to laugh as hard. If we do that whole story about the legs, I'm never you're never going to get as much of a laugh out of me. Did we decide on next week, last week? We did, and I think we decided artefacts, didn't Art, we? Artefacts, we did. We were going to discuss an artefact. I think that's quite creative, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm going to do the leg of Santa Ana. <laughs> I'm going to do the other leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Are you doing the leg as well, Sam? Oh, fuck. No, I'm doing the cork one, Tom. I'm doing the cork one. It's got a rich and varied history. Thank God for that. Oh, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. I've had a wonderful time. I have as well. Good work. And I hope you have as well, audience. If you have, please do subscribe to us. Give us a review on your favourite podcasting app. Let us know what you thought. If you can think of any other animal food related (laughs) puns that could go into a poem. Do get in touch with us and let us know. You can do that either by commenting on our website. You can comment below each podcast episode. That's thatwasgeniuspodcast.com. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. That underscore was underscore genius. On Instagram, that was genius. And on Facebook, that was genius podcast. Let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you. But please do like and subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Amen. So I guess we'll say goodbye and see everyone next week. Well, we won't. We'll, we'll, no, we won't even hear them. 
What do we do? We just throw this shit out into the ether. Yeah, we just... <laughs> we haunt their headphones. We just throw shit at the wall and hope that some of it comes out looking like a Picasso. <laughs> so, uh, enjoy, dear audience. Enjoy the oral shit Picasso that we're throwing <laughs> into your ears every week. There's a slogan. <laughs> Surely audio shit Picasso is slightly less. Oh, I meant oral as in A-U-R-A-L. Oh, okay. Excellent. That's better. Saved. <laughs> oh, no. An oral shit Picasso. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, uh, <laughs> we love you all like our own children. I mean, I don't have children, so I love you as much as my children. Tom's probably slightly keener on his kids. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>